now for something special. The unit is self-contained with its own saddler, farrier, wheelwright and so on. It's a rigorous training dished out who know all there is to know about horses and it brings results. We take you behind the scenes now to show just some of the interesting aspects of this training. Welcome back to Equine Dynamics with Mike Stein, the best podcast to create sounder horses from the ground up. Mike Stein is a registered journeyman farrier with an APF1 accreditation. This week's show, five basic hoof shapes as identified by the late farrier Scott Simpsons, and also what constitutes for a healthy frog, and finding the center of a hoof versus the center of articulation. All this and much, much more will be discussed here on Equine Dynamics with Mike Stein, and over to my far inside is Mike Stein. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you, Travis? Doing all right. So what you been up to this past week or so this past week yes seven days ago seven days ago that was a long time ago for some of us yes yes now i've been having a few horses with some laminitic flare-ups we've gotten a little bit of rain in areas we've got some pasture coming up and in this part of the country we have more fall late summer fall flare-ups than we do in the spring part of it's because people are thinking about it in the spring in the fall not necessarily and pretty much most of these at this point are chronic cases that are having reoccurrences now here here on the property uh we have four horses and we normally do uh, like a timothy or orchard fest uh, fescue whatever hay i don't know <laughs> my wife tells me get that hay and throw it out to the right. horses but it's it's rich from my understanding and we've actually backed off we normally do two flex per horse and because of, like you said, the grass and everything and these, these thunderstorms that are coming through, uh, we've actually backed off for two reasons. One, price. I mean, a price of a, a square bale is like $15 now. And, yeah, it just it's amazing how much they can get for grass. But with the kind of money you make, I don't see where that's a problem. <laughs> and the second thing is because of, of, of them make, putting on a little bit of weight because they are getting uh, nutrients and stuff out of the grass or their, their pastures that they have right now. Now, something we're getting ready to do is reseed uh, one of the pastures we're the mayor, which is going to be a brood mare. So I guess from, from my understanding, you're not allowed to have fescue at all if a horse is getting pregnant or, or possibility of it getting pregnant. Yeah, there are some problems with the fescue with brood mares. And also you have some endotoxin problems that can head towards problems with laminitis with fescue. So we're in an area where there's... We're kind of on the south end of it. If you go a little further south, you start getting into Bermuda grass. In our hot areas, you start seeing some Bermuda, Bermudas. But, yeah, there are some are some issues with your brood mares. There are some issues with laminitic horses. And sounds like you're going to get into something to make money. Uh, I'm not sure if we're going to make money doing this, but, you know, you never make money with horses. You always, you know, <laughs> you always lose money. It sounds good on paper. It does. You try to come up with some kind of business plan, and at the end of the day, you're sitting there, and you're looking at that red number at the end, and you're like going, how did this happen? How did this happen? Now, you were talking about the grass coming in and the pastures and worrying about your horses eating too much and, and being laminitic. You mentioned something. We were out downstairs uh, below the studio here, and you were saying something about a, a muzzle, a grazing muzzle. I've never heard that expression and i've been with my wife for over f- 14 years now and I've, she's never put one on you no she, she's not okay sometimes she wish she could put one on me but i mean uh, a grazing muzzle what does that do well it slows down the eating they how but i mean physically how does it work does it keep the horses mouth for, i think of like a chastity belt type thing i don't think it works quite like that <laughs> okay <laughs> it's close but not quite no they can still move their mouth and what it does is there's think of a 
bucket over the end of your the muzzle, and it's got holes or slots in it where they can get some grass through. They can't get as big a mouthful. So it's like a portable hay bag on the horse's face. Mm, kind of, except it keeps the hay out. <laughs> yeah, you don't want as much hay you out. You don't want as much. So they, they have to eat through it so it slows down the intake you're doing right by cutting back on its overall caloric intake Mm -hmm. and when your pastures are coming up they're getting more grazing you need to look at your grain you need to look at your hay you need to look at everything else you're feeding the horse because you know you're not uh controlling what they're eating out in the field they are unless you're putting a grazing muzzle or something on them and if you've got a horse that is too heavy has been around with laminitis problems before they are more prone to have problems and we don't want to get back into that because you know you get repeat 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 each time you get a little more damage and we don't want to go down that road and it's it's management all right guys we got a big show to get into uh make sure you follow us on your youtube channel uh search for equine dynamics mike stein you can see for every podcast we do we have a matching video and we've got the live streaming up and running here we're going to have a couple guests on the show later on this year uh, during this season so make sure you uh, subscribe and hit that little bell so when we go live with any guests that you might like to see on the show subscribe over to youtube as well all right guys stick around we got a big show to get into you're looking at equine dynamics with mike stein he'll be right back Welcome back to Equine Dynamics with Mike Stein. He was the official farrier in 2018 for the World Equestrian Games. And you can ask Mike any question, and the way you do that is go over to equinedynamics.com. At the top of the page, hit contacts, fill out that little form there, ask Mike a question, make sure you put podcasts in the subject line so he can decipher between all the other emails that he gets throughout the day. And put your question in there, we'll answer it here on the air, and put your return address as well so we can send you out some magnets, some stickers. Where's uh, your button that you had that I got you the other day? It's it's, it's on my suspense. Okay. It's on my suspenders, and I have a box of them in the truck. Oh, all right. And Mike will send those out to you if you uh, send us a question, and we read it here on the air. Now, Mike, we're going to get into the five basic hoof shapes as identified by the late farrier, Scott Simpson. Am I saying that right, Simpson? Simpson, yes. Don't forget, for every podcast we do, we have a matching video, and you can see this in real time as we're talking about it here on the show. So let me switch cameras here, and we're going to these right here. Now, Norman, Stubby, Spike, Tag, and Ralph. Tell me about these different shapes and what each... Each one of them means. Well, Scott did a good job of patterning feet, and other people have gotten into it. We come up with some similar patterns, and this is kind of what you run into. Now, where this kind of comes in as far as training your eye, if you're doing uh, like a eagle eye contest mm-hmm. where you have so many seconds to look at a foot, you got to figure the size of it, and you got to build a shoe for that foot. So this graph that I'm looking at here reminds me of, remember High Times Magazine? Well, I'm sorry, Highlights Magazine. I three different magazines from you. <laughs> but the one that you see in like the doctor's office, and they always have the two pictures to pick out the difference between the two pictures. Right. So I'm looking at every single one of these, except for tag that I'm looking at here on the screen. Every single one of these looks exactly the same no they don't <laughs> well to your trained eye to my uh novice eye no and the more i look at them i can yeah i can see a little bit more difference in between but yeah they almost all look the same but yes a trained eye would notice a difference right for the most part the tag is normally more of a hind foot kind of a diamond shape except for on you know everybody has the this idea of the perfect mustang foot mm-hmm. uh, the, the mustang gelding that i have he's got basically four tag feet on him four hind feet he has no problem with soundness or is this normal for most horses it's a normal shaped pattern of a foot so normally your front feet are going to be more like the 
top row. And then Ralph is kind of a foot where you've got a half and a half split. You may have a spike slash Norman and split it down the middle. What you do is you look at medial side, lateral side. If you're building a shoe, you get this basic pattern in your head. You get the size of steel you need, and they set the timer, and you cut your steel, and you start making a horseshoe, and you get that picture in your mind, and that's what you build to. And I see Ralph here does have like a little bit of wobble on the left side as to the right side. It's a little bit more tighter in there. Right. And the Ralph foot, I would say, would probably be more of a hind foot, but there again, it can be on the front. And you have some horses with some odd-shaped hind feet also because of limb alignment, tendon ligament issues or whatever, where you may have a foot that might end up being a little more like a spike foot on the back end. Now, out of all these five different patterns, the Norman, the Stubby, the Spike, the Tag, and the Ralph, which one is more likely to give you more issues or or common issues? Like, oh my God, you know, you've got a Ralph or you've got a Tag or something. Like Which that. common issue? There's a lot of common yeah, issues. Yeah, I know. I, I And I, it was kind of a loaded question there. Right. But I mean, which one gives you the most problems or, you know, oh, you, you don't want to have a stubby foot because that one's more likely to have blank, blank, and blank. Well, if you got a foot that falls into like clubby categories, you know, those horses, you'll tend to have problems like around the tip of the calf bone thinning down and not get enough mass between there and the ground. But then on the other end, if you go to more of a Norman-shaped foot and you've got a low slung foot where you got go to flat negative palmer angles and that sort of thing, you also run into, especially on your thoroughbred type feet, more thin soles and probably a flatter foot stubby probably would have more cup to it be a little more upright there's no perfect anything it's going to be a little different with different breeds you're going to have a heavy foot of warm blood the foot's going to be react a little different than your light-footed thoroughbred with looking at the hind feet if you look at uh one that is uh more of your ralph i would say when the horse moves out you're probably going to get a little, little more limb rotation over a horse that had a foot would have a hind foot more like tag you're going to have movement patterns that build around the foot you start looking at feet looking at horses move you can start predicting a little bit of how the horse is going to move out after you've seen this now for horse owners scott simpson is well worth looking up and reading up on he did some great stuff and when you're balancing feet they always talk about finding the widest part of the foot most of the front foot patterns is going to be fairly center. Some of the back feet, that center wide point is going to be a little bit further back. And that gets into some of our next discussion. The farrier takeaways that said you have to understand the shape of what you're creating before you can even make it to an anvil. Every shape of the hoof exists on a horn. Learn these arcs and use the horn as a die to build the efficiency of the flow into the shoe shapes. And also the horizontal line on the horn is important because it can and will move as the stock is being turned or bent around that horn. So there you go for your farriers out there. Right. And he's talking more for fabricating, building, uh, modifying shoes or that sort of deal but even on your barefoot horses and and there's a lot of them out there and some people are maintaining their own horses you'll start learning how each foot will react a little different all right guys stick around when we come back uh we'll dive into what constitutes a healthy frog and why are horse statues built the way they are with one foot up one foot down all this and much much more will be discussed here on equine dynamics the ground mike stein will be right back the price is getting higher every day when it comes to good loving, it's the same old way. The high cost of love getting higher every day. And the less I get, the more I have to pay. 
Welcome back to Equine Dynamics with Mike Stein. He was the 2017 American Eventing Championship Farrier. And make sure you like him on Facebook. Follow him on all your social media by going to Equine Dynamics. Search for Mike Stein as well. Uh, we're on YouTube, and for every podcast we do, we have a matching video. There's Mike waving to me and me waving to Mike. And make sure, if you have any questions for Mike, you can fill out the little form over at equinedynamics.com. Put podcasts in the subject line, and we'll send you out some magnets. Make sure you put a return address on there. Uh, we got some magnets, some stickers, and some lapel buttons that Mike's showcasing over there on his suspenders. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, he took the suspenders down so he could see his logo. Now, Mike, you ever done any like sightseeing road trips or anything like that? Gone to like historical cities or anything? Occasionally. And sometimes, usually like near a square or, or a, a roundabout or where the cars are driving all the time, you always see like a soldier, like a Civil War soldier or vet on a horse. And sometimes that horse will have one foot raised up. Sometimes it'll have him on his hind ends with both feet up. Sometimes it'll just be standing on all fours. What they're saying is that there's symbolism based on how many feet are off the ground and how many feet are on the ground, depending on... It has nothing to do with that one may have a sore foot. (laughs) I don't know if that's the case. But what they're saying is, here's the claim. The number of horse hooves lifted in the air on the equestrian statues reveals how the horse rider actually died. Well, this is kind of false. Well, it's 50-50 false, 50-50 true. Folk wisdom says that the equine statues contain a code where it would tell the rider's fate can be determined by knowing how many hooves are raised in the air. The most common theory is that if one hoof is raised, the rider was wounded in battle, possibly dying from his wounds later on, but not necessarily so. Two hooves in the air mean he died in battle. All four hooves on the ground says that the rider survived all the battles unharmed. Now, technically, this is false. The reason why this came to be is because of the the statues in Gettysburg, all the equine statues in the Gettysburg area followed this code. Right. And then later on they searched all the uh, horses statues. Washington, D.C. having the most horse statues in the air said that 10 out of the 30 followed the same code. But they also say if he was a Confederate soldier and he was facing north, that means he died in the war. And if the horse is facing south, he survived the battle and went back home to see his family type deal. It's kind of true and not kind of true. Just if you ever hear someone say that out there, it all depends on who's telling the story and, and what that story is. Yeah, that tends to happen with a lot of things now, doesn't it? <laughs> it gets lost in translation. Now, being lost in translation, what constitutes a healthy frog outside of the ones that I got sitting down by the pond? Looking at a frog, you got healthy frogs at the pond. <laughs> I got lots of healthy frogs at the pond. I hear them every night. Right, <laughs> right. One thing you can do is looking at frogs. Now, you know, fir- now, first of all, tell me what a frog is on a horse. On a horse? Yes. On a horse, gotcha. <laughs> the frog is, you got the wall around the outside edge of the foot. You got the sole, which is wraps around behind the wall. Mm-hmm. The bars are where the wall come in and turn in, and in between the bars would be the frog. And how did it get that name, or is that just... You know... I don't know that one. I don't know where that came from. It's been there. Someone told someone said something. Someone said, and there you go. Somebody probably has the answer to that. I do not. Well, if you, if you got the answer, make sure you email Mike Stein over at equinedynamics.com and tell him your answer as far as why it's been called a frog without us having to Google search it. If you take a pair of wing dividers, in the very back, very center of the frog, there's a distal ergot, some people call it a frog stay. And if you measure on a healthy frog the length of the cleft, 
if you take the wing dividers and flip them, you should measure about where the length of your frog should be. If it's stretched forward to that, frogs can narrow up and, and the stretch forward. If that, that front part will stretch, pretty much all your stretch is going to be up there. Then you well, stretch forward, and that kind of goes with a, with a contracted, low-slung foot. The width of the frog, if you take that and you measure across the back of the width of your frog, it should be relatively close. Some people have some different numbers on that. A good, healthy cleft where it's not separated, you don't have a big split down the middle of it, because that's an area you can get some infection. And depending on the conformation of the foot, that can be that can be a little bit of a problem area of infection. You know, when I'm prepping a foot, it's, it's kind of different for a shot horse versus a unshot horse. On an unshot horse, if I've got a good callus on there, I'm probably going to keep most of it. I want to go down either side of the frog and i want to find the base because that's my best determination in the field quickly do we have depth to the foot or not how, how deep you fill in with hoof pick or hoof knife in a domestic world i'll clean that out some and i'll bring it all the way back because i don't want any trash traps in a domestic horse now when you're trimming a frog people do have a tendency to lay the knife in at a real hard angle sometimes with well, the frog itself the the plantar cushion is more closer to straight dips down come back and pretty straight down so think about that when you're trimming the frog you should go through there but you get these flaps that fold over and out and you remove those flaps so you can not have infection if you've got a horse that's out on the range they'll pack dirt in there and yes nobody's cleaning them but they're not living in a domestic environment and they're not standing in their own feces and all that sort of deal so we want to keep that where we can maintain it and keep a healthy foot as far as any kind of infection in there and that's the reason that you do prep that getting the proper dimensions of the frog i mean an ideal foot you've got the frogs should fill up about two-thirds of the foot so if you take your wing dividers find your frog stay measure up through the cleft flip it find about where your tip of your frog should be flip it again find the front of the foot but then if you've got a foot where that front part can be an inch inch and a half and, and i've seen some this big where that front part of the frog is close to twice as long and then you figure well that's two-thirds of the, where the foot should be and you start figuring out the front of your foot off of that i look at a foot i built from the back forward instead of from the front back when i was taught that i looked from the front back but i've learned that you prep the back of the foot and then start working forward from there but if you're looking at that say well i've got two-thirds of the frog it's one-third two-thirds and that frog is elongated well that throws everything else in in an odd place so that's something that needs to be thought about when we're prepping a foot whether shod unshod or whatever i always get scared when my wife grabs that pick and starts you know picking out the frog i always think that she's going to hit some soft tissue in there or something because she just i mean she gets that thing in there and just like rip 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 and you see like dirt and clay and and rocks come flying out of there if you cut down a frog or you shave it you said you know angle the knife just right is there something in there the equivalent of like what a dog has a wick and you you cut off the toenails and you don't want to hit that wick right at the end does a frog have that exact thing if you lay your knife in too far you can draw blood and you're thinning it way down and you're paring away at the plantar cushion when you go in that deep as far as her going in there with a hoof pick that doesn't bother me if you see what i do to it they feel they feel pressure there's pressure receptors in the frog the pressure receptors when the, it comes into the ground activates look up the proprioceptor response it makes a difference in how the muscles in the upper leg and the shoulder or make the hip respond as the horse is changing ground conditions because they can run, go flying off a hard pack into mud and the horse is not going to lose their footing and 
they're going to change their body is instantly going to change and part of us they're actually feeling the pressure change through the back part of the frog if you look at the frog that's been wet there's a bunch of little holes that will form in the frog and those are actually where your nerve endings come down now at that point they're pressure sensors they don't feel really feel pain so i'm not too worried if your wife's frog is to the point that she's going to draw blood with a hoof pick we've got some infection problems that need to be taken care of so those out there pick them with your uh your frog picker <laughs> keep an eye and make sure you're not drawing any blood because that's a first sign of something well you're you got some signs well before you start getting blood okay you know you'll get the smell you'll get the black gunk you're pulling out of there you'll get oozy stuff you're pulling out of there <laughs> gross <laughs> everyone eating lunch right now everybody's eating lunch <laughs> you know that you're going to have some signs before you get to that point if your horse's feet are being maintained on a regular basis, you shouldn't have that problem. Honestly, if you're cleaning the foot before it gets nasty, every now and then you get a little air to it. That will take care of a lot of it before you start hitting it with any kind of treatments. Now, before I met my wife, I knew a little bit about horses. That's one of the first things my wife taught me when we first started dating. She would grab that horse's foot and start picking it out. And, and that was like one of the first things she would do after riding, after taking off all the you know the gear and everything, all the tack. That's the first thing she would do even before she she brushes down the horse it's clean those frogs out right so yeah. that's like a like a beginner entry level for that is, what, what i know well that's what you need to know is, is that your job now i've never done it only because i'm afraid of picking up the horse's foot and i've seen you know i don't i wouldn't know what to do you know you've got this hoof of this you know thousand pound animal cradled in your hand and you're picking it i'm afraid that I'm just afraid of horses. Let's put it that way. I'm afraid that I'm going to get stepped on, pushed, or the horse is going to buck or do something crazy because I'm doing something wrong. Right. And if you're afraid of them, that's exactly what will happen. Yes. It took me a long time to move the horses from the from the stables out to the pastures. All I know, all I know is I'm supposed to stand on the right-hand side. That's all I know. Unless you're on the other side of the horse. Aren't you supposed to walk with the horses, walker on the right side of the horse at all times? Well, yes. You. That's the way we train them, and uh, there are historic reasons why we do that, most people are right-handed, the way they mount, where they would carry your sword so you can go on and load on and off the horse right. and the whole bit. But, uh, yeah, really, if a horse is well-trained and quiet enough, you should be able to lead a horse from either side. You probably should be able to mount from either side. All right. Well, I'll have to work on that. That's my homework for this week. All right, guys, stick around. When we come back, we're going to find out what the center of the hoof is versus the articulation of the center of a foot. Stick around. You're listening to Equine Dynamics with Mike Stein. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Equine Dynamics with Mike Stein. Now, I messed this up last week, so this is the correction. You are now a licensed thoroughbred farrier through the Kentucky Horse Racing Commission. Did I say that correctly this time? Yes. Yes. I think it's pretty close. All right. And make sure you follow Mike Stein on all your social networks. And the way you do that is search for Equine Dynamics Mike Stein. We have a YouTube channel. Make sure you like and subscribe, Mike. Your numbers are increasing. Every week I go in there and I look at the numbers. And, you know, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35 people have joined like every week. And so, and those numbers are creeping up. And I'm. We have 35 people? No, no. Adding another 
30, 40 people on top oh, gotcha. every week. And we appreciate all you guys. We're now, past five anyway. We have at least me, you, your wife, my wife, and then some other guy is out there listening to us. Those are the five people we started right, with. Right, yeah. And don't forget, we do reach out all the way across the water there. Every time I post an episode of Equine Dynamics with Mike Sign, I see over in Singapore. I see a lot of people in France. So we appreciate all our overseas listeners as well. Unfortunately, we can't send you out any magnets or anything, but we do appreciate all your support over there and also a big uh, fan base over in your old stomping ground over in New Zealand and Australia. Oh, nice. Yeah, nice. A, lot of, a lot of people over there, a lot of downloads over there, so we appreciate you guys as well. Now, Mike, we're going to talk about finding the center of a hoof as to the center of the articulation. First of all, I know what a hoof is. Tell me what you mean by center of articulation. The center of articulation is working around the coffin joint. And reality, when we're balancing a foot, we're working around that center of articulation. Now, externally, when we're finding the widest part of the foot, we're kind of trying to find the center of the mass of the foot. And when you look at that center of articulation, if you've got a upright foot versus a low slung foot, that center of articulation is going to be a little different point as opposed to the center of the mass. Now, ideally, what we're, we're trying to do is find the center of that joint and drop a line down from it. If you drop that palmer angle or stand up that palmer angle, relationship to the widest part of the foot is a little bit different. If you, I'm, I know I'm scrolling through. I, I I'm scrolling through pictures here, so uh, people can at least right. when they're watching the video, they can see what Mike's talking so about here. When I'm working at uh, the widest part of the foot, there are several equations on how to find your way there. If you clean out to the medial side, what I'm looking at is the inside of the lamina, more to the medial side. If you draw a line around it, you slide your rasp across, but it should be the last little bit to disappear. You can use your wing dividers, measure your frog or your tip of your frog, work your way back from there. That'll put you close. I'm not going to go into detail on all that right now. But there are about at least four or five, a dozen more ways to figure out where the widest part of your foot is. The quickest way is with a, with a ruler probably. But then you look at x-rays and the last couple of weeks i've gotten several x-rays with the vets that i'm working with if you look at the upright versus the more normal relationship and you look at where that lines up over the base of the hoof it's in a little different location the low foot versus the normal foot versus the upright foot when i'm shoeing a horse we've got to start taking that into consideration on where we're placing our support and what kind of a lever arm do we have from beneath that joint to the front of the shoe and at what point putting support becomes compression on the back of the foot because if you start running it too far back you can start crushing things with the length of the shoes as the lever working against the foot so you want to work in a range to get enough pressure off the tendon that the horse can come over and come through without torquing between the hoof capsule and the coffin bone itself you're looking at leverage reduction there are a number of ways out there that people have come up with mapping withdrawing with laying out the shape of the foot that are all interesting to look at uh, i would encourage you to look at many of these measurement programs and kind of go through them and see where they're landing a lot of them are going a different way to get to the same spot so this one right here this diagram that we have up has a uh, what is that medi mediolateral balance the white line distortion solar i can't read that word right there frog uh, balance bar trajectory and all that and so this is 
this something that you use here, or is this just one of the styles of finding out the center? That is one of the styles of finding out the center. The yellow line that's set inside of the white line. This right here, the SC right here? Right. Okay. You, there, there are a few ways to kind of figure that. You can take any of these uh, deals that you kind of press into molding to get the shape of the mold and you get the hardware store. Yeah. If you take that and press it into the coronary band and then line it up on the base of your foot and bring it back to where you got an even line around there and draw your line, you're probably going to be fairly close to the perimeter of the coffin bone. That's not something I do on a daily basis. You'll see the texture change in the foot itself. When you look at thousands and thousands of feet, no, I don't sit there and measure that out and draw that out. In fact, when when I was really starting, this whole concept of mapping feet was more if it looks like a duck, you treat it like a duck. The whole mapping deal came across as far as trying to find a better way to teach people. And then, you know, after thousands and thousands of feet, you start learning to go more by feel, if that makes any sense. Yes. You run off your gut. <laughs> and in my situation, I see a lot of x-rays with the different clinics I'm working with. Mm-hmm. You know, you see the foot, you see what's going on. One of the best teachers I ever had, I guess, really was broodmares. There was a time when I worked a farm that sometimes would have upwards of 200 horses on it. Every other week, I got to go there to trim 40 horses. And I spent a lot of time crawled up under old brood mares and everything. And with that weight, those feet changed quick. And every trim technique that I could pop up out there, I got to try on those brood mares. And you went through, and then you start seeing which ones would react certain ways. And this works on this type foot. This works on that type foot. It was a great place to learn. People that are trimming their own feet, I tell them, you ought to find you a herd of broodmares to work on. And trial and error and out trial there. And error, a little bit of trial and error. You don't want to cause any pain to any of them. Right. But on the other end, you need to see how things respond. And those feet with added weight and all that, they're going to change faster than your gelding's feet out there that's out there barefoot. It's kind of so, it's kind of like being a sandlot mechanic. You know, you're just... Exactly. Exactly. You're working on this old, a bunch of old broodmares. Those broodmares will teach you a lot about strange things feet do. You know, you see, well, you take out all the bars, you leave in all the bars, you do this, you do that. Every now and then something pops up and, oh, this is what we got to do to all feet. Well, that's not so. And they'll start teaching you what feet you can and cannot. Real quick. Real quick. Real quick. <laughs> Especially when you got that number of them. Yeah. You know, they would breed horses. I think about the biggest army was about 210 horses on the farm. Every other week you go up to do about 40. When we started working on the yearlings to go to the sales, we'd start making extra trips in for them. And then we'd drop down to 50, 60 horses. And you still stayed on a every every other week, 40 horses to trim. Just you? Or you got to just you? Just me. Just me. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> That's a lot of upside down work, Mike. A lot of upside down work. Kind of tells you something, doesn't it? It does. All right, guys, stick around. When we come back, we got one more little segment to get into. And uh, we'll let you get back to enjoying the rest of your day. You're listening to Equine Dynamics with Mike Stein. We'll be right back. back to Equine Dynamics with Mike Stein, uh, the best podcast to create sound of horses from the ground up. If you have any questions for Mike Stein, uh, email equinedynamics.com at the top of the page says contacts, fill out that little form there, 
uh, with your question. Make sure you put podcast in the subject line, and uh, we'll send you out some magnets, some stickers and stuff. Make sure you put a return address on there just to say thank you for listening to us and sharing us and, and getting your questions in. And Mike and myself will answer them on the air, hopefully, correctly. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll give it a good run. We'll give we'll it a good Sound good. Sure. And over to my far end side is Mike Stein. How are you? I'm doing good. All right. So what did we learn today, Mike? Five basic hoof shapes as identified by the late farrier Scott Simpson. Hold on. It's Norman, Stubby, Spike, Tag, and Ralph. It's weird that he calls them these names or that's what he came up with instead of just, you know, the weird scientific name. Like Scott made it pretty scientific yeah. the way he got there. I think Stubby is a good scientific name for that hoof. That is. Yeah, normal is probably more of your normal average foot. Stubby, of course, it explains itself. And you get different variations of every foot. It's definitely something that people need to look at when they're working with their horses and start realizing different feet. We will handle each foot a little different. And then there's Ralph. <laughs> My buddy Ralph, who's the egg shape. Yeah, Ralph. He's got a little wobble to him. Ralph's got a little wobble to him. Also, what constitutes a healthy frog? Good, clean frog, not having infection problems. Not overly stretched far forward. A good width. Look at your frog stray or ergot to the cleft. Look at the length. Look at the width. You can use that as a gauge to kind of tell where you are in relationship to the width of the back of the frog to the overall length and start getting some dimensions in there as to what a frog's dimension should be. These extremely narrow, extremely stretched out frogs, if you're measuring off the tip of the frog to see where your foot is, that's a whole different story from the frog that is nice as dimensions. And uh, when we're looking at where the front of the foot is, we need to think about where the frog should be, not where it is when one is distorted. Here's a side note that it just popped in my head. Is it recommended or do you, of course you would recommend it, to getting an experienced farrier to come look at your horse or look at a horse before you purchase it? For example, you know, we just bought this new gelding out here. I don't know if you were involved with, you know, going out there and literally kicking the tires and looking at the the horse's foot and saying that, no, you're going to have problems with this horse because of A, B, and C. I could kick him, but he kicked me back. (laughs) Uh, I mean, outside, because you get vet checks on them, but they don't cover as far as the depth of the shoe itself or the hoof itself. They should. They should, okay. They should, and depending on the vet you're getting, because that's some of the discussion we've had off on the sidebar, some vets are well-versed in equine podiatry. Okay, so that is part of the, this is part of the check, so make sure that your, make sure your vets. A lot are not as well as probably should be. But that falls for us as professionals in the ferry business also. Having a vet with some good hoof leg experience that has had some training in that podiatry area would be a definitely plus when you're getting a vet check. Right. All right. And last but not least, finding the center of the hoof as to the center of articulation. Got to start paying attention to where the center of the foot is when you start prepping a foot, shot or unshot. you got to start thinking about where the center of articulation is as opposed to the center of the foot. If you got a low-slung foot and that articulation is dropped way back, we've got to start thinking a little different on how we prep that foot as opposed to one where the center of articulation is closer to that widest part of the foot. And that's kind of a... A floating scale in there because of like angulation of foot, low palmer angle versus an upright foot versus everything in between. Every time that changes, it changes that dynamic between the center of articulation and the center of the foot. 
All right, guys, we'd like to thank each and every one of you for listening to us, downloading us, and being part of our show. Make sure you follow us on social networks, and the way you do that is search for Equine Dynamics with Mike Stein. You can follow him on Facebook. You're posting a lot of interesting articles over there on your Facebook feed. Uh, make sure you like and subscribe to him over there. And don't forget, for every podcast we do, we have a matching video. You can find us over on YouTube as well. And Mike also has that four-part series with Ray Morris about learning how to massage your horse, uh, a blind gentleman out of New Zealand. Four-part series, check that out as well. On that note, guys, we're going to let you get back to enjoying the rest of your day on behalf of Mike Stein. Thank you. Y'all have a good one. My name is Travis Holmes. See you next week. All of the doggies are in the corral. All of your work is done. Just close your eyes and dream, little pal. Dream on.